0: Evening, folks. Uh, As Ken said, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Dan. Uh, It's great to be with you this evening. Thanks for having me. Uh, Not that you've had much choice. Uh, Before we go any further, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this part of your word. It is intense and, at first glance, can seem a million miles away from where we are today. But please help us to spot the similar tactics and pressures used by King Nebuchadnezzar to the tactics and pressures that we face today and how we should respond to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Daniel uh, chapter 3 tonight, that's just been read for us. But before we dive in, I want you to picture yourself living some years in an imaginary future where Britain has become a hardline line. Pride Nation. So the Union Jack has been replaced by the rainbow flag draped on every government building. The slogan, you do you, is emblazoned on everything from company logos to school uniforms. And the national anthem now goes, we will be true to ourselves. The beating heart of the country is government-enforced worship of the God of the individual. I can be whoever and whatever I want, and you had better celebrate that or else. And in this wonderful new world, there is a knock at your door. It's the police. And the question they have for you is, will you submit to the rainbow? or suffer the consequences up to and including death uh, now if this is uh, making you think uh, you know, is this what we're in for an anti-homosexual rant uh, that is not going to be the case but having read Daniel chapter 3 the parallels are all too striking aren't they? you know because that situation is exactly the sort of choice that God's people face in that chapter submit To the government enforced God or die. Choose. And I imagine some of you might be thinking, okay, that's true, but come on, let's not exaggerate here. I mean, we are never going to face that sort of choice today. I mean, this is Britain, not, you know, Afghanistan, you know, submit to Islam or die. Well, some people would say that that imaginary future is much closer to home than a lot of people realize but even if not we still need to know that being a Christian means being willing to lose anything everything rather than deny the Lord Jesus because look how Jesus defined a Christian this is chapter 8 of Mark's gospel where it says, Then Jesus called the crowd to him and along with his disciples, sorry, along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. In other words, deny what you want in order to put first what Jesus wants. And take up his cross. In other words, be willing for what happened to Jesus, rejection right the way up to and including death, to happen to you. Because sometimes it's really easy to slip into the mindset, isn't it? That, uh, uh, you know, there's two different types of Christians, aren't there? Okay, so uh, type one is your your sort of regular Christian, you know, willing to lose a reasonable amount for Jesus, but nothing too extreme. And then there's type two, which is the super Christian, you know, the one who is ready and willing to lay everything on the line for Jesus in a way that type one is just not expected to do. To which Jesus says... No, there's not two types, there's just one. It's Mark 8. A Christian is someone who is willing to lose anything and everything rather than deny the Lord Jesus, which means that as we drop into Daniel 3 this evening, we, we are not looking at uh, uh, an extreme situation faced only by you know, the, the superhero Christian. No, 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 Daniel 3 is all about the mark of any genuine Christian and whether we can see that mark in ourselves. Uh, So with that rather intense introduction, let's get into it. And the very first message that Daniel 3 has for us is, don't get swept up in worshiping the wrong things. So if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you you will have seen uh, Dan the man and his mates plucked from their homes in Israel and plonked in the mighty city of Babylon, ruled over by King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet. And um, only last week in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 2, uh, King Neb has his wings clipped as God shows him who is really the boss. And that seems to end fairly well, but as chapter 3 opens, uh, Neb, he has decided to fight back. So here's verse 1 again. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. <laughs> Skip a bit. Furnace. So that is the deal, and maybe you read it and think, seriously? I mean, this is this is just silly, it's just a statue. Nobody is going to fall for this. Really? And yet you read in verse seven, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everybody worships it, everybody, okay? This is not a crowd-splitting event. Everybody has bowed down. And actually, when you look at what King Neb did, he's a clever guy, when you look at what he did, it is no wonder that the mass has found it very persuasive. Okay, because he basically had a three-step plan of how to get people on their knees. Step one, capture the senses. Because just think about how big that statue was. I think the footnote in the ESV says that a cubit is 18 inches, which makes this thing bigger than the Angel of the North, right? So it's not, you know, Burj Khalifa kind of height, but it is still huge, OK? It dominates the skyline for miles around. Stand at its feet and, you know, it towers over you, eclipsing the heavens. And the thing is made of gold. So the second the sun's rays hit it, your eyes are dazzled. It shines brilliantly king neb knows how to capture your eyes and having done that he then goes for the ears because all that stuff about the harp the lyre the bagpipe that is not just you know artsy fluff to kind of pad out the event and ceremony no 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 no. neb knows the power of music because music is it's attractive isn't it you know, it draws crowds together. It unites people as they sing, and it's catchy. It gets into your head, and you know, without knowing it, you are humming it again and again and again. Neb knows that if you give people the right anthem, you will stir their soul. And so you find yourself uh, in uh, this, you know, massive stadium packed, you know, bursting with people. All senses are focused on this awesome spectacle in front of you. Your heart is pumping. With the beat of the music, it'd feel incredible. You know, your spine would be tingling, hairs standing on end. Either you'd be incredibly intimidated, but either way, it would be so easy to be swept up in what is going on, and that is what Neb is after. And doesn't this sort of stuff happen to us as well? You know. Mo- Most most gigs look like that for a reason. You know, the lights, the smoke, the volume turned all the way up to 11, everything to make crowds of people scream their undying love for the artist on stage whose surname they might not even know. Or football matches. You know, fans hyped up so much that they would kill each other over the score or condemn the guy on the pitch just because he's made one wrong move. We're slightly different. How about the magical algorithms that lie behind YouTube and Snapchat? You know, feeding you more and more of the same content, until that is all you see, and all you think exists to see. We're going back to the rainbow thing for just a moment. How about my experience of getting the flu jab last week? I was in ASDA uh, pharmacy. Um, head into the little consultation room, sit in the chair, look over to the lady who's about to administer the jab, plain blue uniform, rainbow name badge. It's small, you know, it's nothing compared to a 90-foot gold statue, but it's enough to remind me of the god that I should be worshiping, supposedly. Just like King Neb, The world around us loves to capture our senses for the worship of its gods. That is step one. Step number two in Neb's plan, enlist the leaders. So having built this statue, here's what Neb does next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And you wonder, did somebody just hit copy and paste at like the wrong moment there? What is without repetition? The point is, don't skip over this because Neb is doing something really significant. The leaders from all corners of life are coming together as the first people who are going to be won over to this new way of worship. Because if King Neb can say, hey, look, do you see them? All these clever, important, powerful people, they're buying to the statue. Well, then you'll feel pressured to do so as well, won't you? Because how many times have we seen celebrities ruled out to endorse things? You know, usually certain must-have products. I mean, that's the entire basis of being an influencer, isn't it? Or how many times have you perhaps been persuaded of something just because someone from Oxford or Cambridge or with the title doctor before their name said it was so? Step three, make it life or death. Here's the command that goes out to the people again the herald proclaimed aloud you are commanded o peoples to fall down and worship the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar has set up and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and although we are not likely to be threatened with that when we refuse to join in with the idol worship that we see around us, there is a little voice that gets into your head sometimes, isn't there, that says stuff like, if you don't join in, you're gonna miss out. If you don't join in, you are gonna have a rougher time than everybody else. In fact, if you don't join in, you are not gonna fit People aren't going to like you. They'll look at you weird, say things about you, leave you out. You will be alone. And more than that, you only have to spend five minutes on the Christian Institute's website to see stories of people who have lost jobs, livelihoods. They've been arrested, interrogated, dragged, through the courts, slammed in the media just because they are committed to Jesus. And although I said we're unlikely to face a fiery furnace, something that a Christian leader recently said has stuck with me. They said that they expect to die in their bed, they expect their children to die in prison. And they expect their grandchildren to die as martyrs. Such as the mounting opposition to Jesus that they see. There is a war going on all the time. A war for the worship of your heart. And the world will use every tactic it has, every play in the book, To sweep you up in worshiping anything except the one true God. And the first message of Daniel 3 is don't let it. Instead, message number two: make a stand in worshiping the God who saves. Enter Three guys that, with the best trio of names ever, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or uh, to use the better names, the veggie Tales gives them Rakshak and Benny. This is verse 8. At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach. Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So here are three guys amidst presumably thousands of others who refuse, everybody else buys down, they refuse to do so. And as we look at them, they um, show us three things. Yeah, another three things uh, that we need to be convinced of if we are, like them, going to make a stand in worshipping the one true God. Number one, you have to be convinced that God is able to save completely. So uh, these men are brought before furious King Neb. He demands that they uh, uh, obey or they're going to be uh, thrown into the uh, fire immediately. In reply, they say, "O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, in other words, if this is our choice, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O King. I mean, get that. (laughs) They are standing before the most powerful man on the planet and they say, we don't need to answer you. You know, they risk being fried, and yet, it doesn't change a thing. Because no matter how big and intimidating King Neb is making himself out to be, they are looking beyond him to the bigger king. Who stands behind Ned. The king who makes this enormous statue look like a toy soldier. These guys belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, Which means that they probably knew promises from God. Like in uh, uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 43. Where he says, when you walk through fire you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel your Savior. Um, that was written before they uh, uh, you know, had ended up in Babylon. It was not a promise for them specifically. It's certainly not a promise that we can go dancing around in the flames today uh, without uh, fear of pain. But that would have been enough to remind them that God is able to save completely from anything. Are you convinced of that? That's number one. Number two, you have to be convinced that God is worthy. The very next thing they say in verse 18 has got to be the best verse of this chapter. I I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's fantastic. It is a great example of true worship because they've just declared that God is able to save them. And then they say, but if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image That you have set up in other words look we know that God is able to save us but we also know he might not despite that we will not budge you know they're saying to God God we will worship you even if we die because in their minds it is not about them or about what they risk happening it is all about God being worth it whatever happens And that kind of attitude makes me think of the person who has, say, an aggressive cancer. uh, Who says, look, I believe that God is able to save me from this. But even if he doesn't, I am going to worship him with my dying breath. Uh, Or the parent who's job is on the line because they are a Christian who says look I believe that God is able to save my job here you know to keep money in the bank to you know, keep me providing for my family but even if not I will not deny him or the school kid, you know being picked on for their faith even by the teachers so it just feels like there's nowhere to turn who says I believe that God is able to change their attitude towards me but even if he doesn't I am going to worship him. To make a stand for God, you have to be convinced that he is worthy. Are you? Okay, number three, last one. You have to be convinced that God is with you. Here's a quick skim of how the rest of it plays out for Rack, Shak, and Benny. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire, they answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, "But, but I see four men, unbound, and they're walking around in the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out from the fire, which had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had even come upon them." Which is an incredible miracle, okay? If I had a time machine, this is one of those, you know, points in history that I would love to go back and see, but the thing that I would love to see the most is that fourth figure standing with them right there in the flames. Neb said it was one like a son of the gods. In verse 28, uh, I think he refers to it as an angel. It may have been that. It may even have been the son of God himself, some sort of pre-incarnate Jesus. Either way, it was real and physical proof that God is with his people. Even in their darkest, most desperate, blazingly painful hour, He is with them. He is not just sitting up high in the comfort of heaven, looking down at us in all the pain and trouble that we face. He is right here with us by his spirit, strengthening us, sympathizing with us, and most importantly, guarding us from denying him no matter the consequences. He proved that here to Rakshak and Benny. You know, and I imagine they spent the rest of their days totally convinced that God is with them, you know, no matter what is going on. And he proved that to the world, to us. When in the person of Jesus, he left the glories of heaven and he walked the road that took him all the way to the cross, where he bore on himself our eternal pain that we deserve for our sin. You know, if proof was ever needed that God is with his people in their darkest hour, that is it. And to make a stand for God, you have to be convinced that he is with you. Are you? Okay, time I'm sure is either up or very nearly up. Uh, but it's the very last thing, uh, let's go back to Mark chapter 8. Rakshak and Benny, they showed us those three things that we need to be convinced of to make a stand in worshipping God. Jesus gives us one more. This is Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, you know, now by avoiding pain and rejection, even death, by denying me, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, and in other words, hands his life over to me, will save it. To make a stand in worshiping God, you need to be convinced that in the end, Jesus wins, and so do his people right there with him because a Christian is someone who says I am willing to lose anything and everything rather than deny the Lord Jesus because I know that when he comes again as the victor I am going to be victorious right there with him beyond a shadow of a doubt let's pray Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the stand that they made for you in the face of aggressive opposition and the very real threat of death. Please give us eyes to see where the world today entices and pressures us to worship anything other than you. And please give us strength and confidence in you so that we can make a stand like those three did, whatever the temporary consequences, knowing for sure that when Jesus comes again victorious, those who remain faithful to him will be victors right there along with him. In his name we pray. Amen.